dad, you know, you always ask me why things went wrong. How many times did you just sit down with mom and be like, hey, I've noticed you, you, you're doing X and Y. What caused that? What am I doing as, as the man of the house, as your husband, to force you to, to act in these ways? And he never had those conversations in the 17 years they were married. Welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Hello everybody, welcome along. Today I'm stoked to present an awesome conversation with Farzad Koshravi. He is a entrepreneur and a lifelong learner. His project Cicero is designed to present scientific and political perspectives from all corners of society. And he's very committed to bringing a more nuanced and more thoughtful style of discussion to the fore in our country. I learned a lot from him. I know you will too. Enjoy the show. And we're live. Farzad, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's a nice sunny day in Denver. Keeps me happy. That's all I need. All right, man. Dude, well, thank you for being here and taking the time for our guests. Yeah. Who Who is Farzad and, and how did you you know, come to where you are today? Yeah, yeah. So my family immigrated to the U.S. from the Middle East uh, right after 9-11. Uh, so uh, not, we were supposed to come in 2002, but we came in 2001. At, I remember distinctly like seeing 9-11 happen on TV my family from the U.S. was there and we were like, oh, no, like we we I mean, everyone knew what was going on. So we were like, we got to get out as soon as possible. Um, so it came to the U.S. and like any uh, logical uh, immigrant would, we immigrated to Kentucky for some reason. <laughs> uh, and that's where I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky until I was uh, 18. And, you know, growing up, I wasn't a big fan because if you don't have a car, you can't do much. But once you get a car. You know, the world opens up to you. Um, but I'd always been like a world citizen. So I knew like what my friends in, in Europe could do. They start drinking at 16, going out. They could walk places. I was like, ooh, that's that's kind of the lifestyle I want. So 18, went to college in uh, upstate New York. Very different culture from where I came from. I mean, I came, you know, in Kentucky, immigrant family, most of my friends, the school I went to, all working class, you know, people were maybe lower middle class, very few upper middle class. Uh, I was lucky to be friends with a couple of wealthy friends who gave me kind of a taste of that lifestyle. But then you go to the Northeast and I went to a school called Hamilton College where the students, all their parents are lawyers and they're consultants and they're investment bankers and they all come from New York City and New Jersey. And it's a totally different culture and so alien to me. Hmm. Um. And yeah, that was like a culture shock and my first introduction to like a whole different world in, in, in the United States and, and what it means to be American sometimes, because uh, that was different than what we had in Kentucky. And then now I'm in Denver, Colorado, and uh, I've been working at startups and I founded my own companies and just been working in software for my entire career. And that's where my passion is. Hell yeah, man. Thanks for sharing that. I, when I came across your, your content online, you definitely have a a free thinking approach and it doesn't seem like you are afraid of potential consequences as it would affect your business or, or, you know, other things. I, th I think a lot of people and myself, I'm step trying to step out of this kind of live in this world world. Well, well, if I step out and I say something that's not going to be heard by everyone and, and accepted by everyone, there could be consequences. So I guess that one high level is like 
professional imp- implications, but just to wind it back, like even in your own social development, did you have a moment where you said one day, you know what, I don't care what anybody thinks, I'm just going to do do me? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was always someone who felt alienated from wherever I was, whether it was back in the Middle East and Kentucky in school. Uh, it's always been hard for me to feel uh, like I'm part uh, of the community. And that never stopped me from wanting to be part of it and actually building that. But the reason why I always felt alienated is because of how differently I thought, right? I remember coming to the U.S., uh, whatever, I was eight years old, nine years old, and I remember my uh, ESL teacher, English as a second language teacher, um, telling me, hey, Farza, you know, people are going to be mean to you. And my English wasn't too good, but I remember having this conversation, people are going to be mean to you. They'll see you as different. They'll be racist to you. They'll be this and that. And I remember that colored the way I saw and I interacted with students and, and my fellow human beings in my community for, for the next couple of years, where anytime anything would happen, anytime anything would go wrong, it was really hard to see it anything other than they're being mean to me because I'm different. They're being mean to me because uh, I talk different. I look different. I feel different rather than uh, maybe I'm just being an asshole. Maybe I'm being me. Maybe I'm doing weird things. And what that led to was a lack of introspection, right? A lack of, I mean, when you're in that age, you're, you know, if you, your community, your, your peers, we're all trying to error correct, right? We all have behaviors that teachers don't like. We all have behaviors our parents don't like. We all have behaviors our peers don't like. And we're all trying to error correct and fix those behaviors so we can fit into a cohesive community and not have conflict. But when you're embedded with this mindset that like, hey, everyone's being racist and mean towards you because you look different, then you don't error correct. And you, you know, you dig down into this, this mindset you have that might not be conducive to good relationships to your parents, to your teachers, to fellow students. Um, and yeah, that was one of the first experiences I had about how wrong people who are adults can be in my life, about what bad advice they can give me. Because when I got older, I realized, you know what? I, I kind of am like an asshole, right? I, I was like pretty mean mm-hmm. to people. And it wasn't that people were, were mean to me because of my race or the way I looked. It was because I was mean, mean back to them. Uh, and that started my whole journey on understanding and learning about, hey, what are all these cognitive biases and heuristics and that get in the way of us being good human beings and thoughtful and so on and so forth. So that's that's the, the quick summary of it. Nice, nice. Yeah, so... What I'm hearing is, you know, you kind of took something at face face value, and then as you got older, you analyzed it a bit more and saw, you know what, maybe that's not exactly what's happening. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Um, and that the advice that I was given by adults, right, they, they framed the world in a specific way to me, right, that, mm-hmm. hey, people are going to be into you, people are going to do this and that, and it colored everything and the way I interacted with with my peers. And as soon as I got out of that mindset, right, as soon as I realized, you know what, like, what am I talking about? You know, 30% of my, my school is, is black. 15% is Latino. Uh, actually whites were in the minority where, where I went to high school and middle school. Um, obviously that, that can't, it just can't be the way. And, and most people actually at that time used to, you know, by the time I was 14, 15, most people, unless I told them my name would think I'm white or I was born here because I didn't have really an accent or I looked pretty normal. Um, so it, I couldn't keep making that excuse that, oh, people are just being mean to me because I look mm. different and I talk different. 
it didn't make sense. It didn't fit yeah. Well. It sounds like it was kind of tied in with the coming of age, you know, accepting responsibility and, and self accountability a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I was super lucky that at that time I discovered the beauty of science, right? I, I, I came across the scientific way of thinking and mm. I realized that it's, it's more than this body of knowledge, that it really is a way of thinking and a way of interrogating the truth out of the world. But that was all pure luck, right? And I was yeah. very fortunate that I got that. Well, I mean, you know, I guess along the same lines, like give yourself credit for prioritizing it and, and incorporating it into your, you know, your lifestyle, right? Yeah, I agree. But I, I think it's just, you know, we live in a world where our institutions and our people still act like we don't have unlimited access to the most valuable knowledge in human history, right? Like on your phone, you have more knowledge than, than any of the greatest emperors of Rome could have wished to get out of the library of Alexandria, right? Mm-hmm. You, can, you have more insight, more mentorship, more access to smart people than Napoleon or Alexander the Great would have ever had, right? Socrates is or was it Aristotle that Alexander had? Nothing compared to what we have now on your phone. Yet we act like this doesn't exist, right? We still act like you have to go to these institutions that uh, have been there, these universities and these schools to teach you these things. And then these, these schools don't even focus on like the, the critical thinking things that mm-hmm. 2,500 years ago were being taught to Alexander. And instead you're forced to memorize facts and, and learn how to write 500 word essays rather than the Socratic method, rather than learning about the allegory of the cave of how blind you can be to, to the world around. Mm. And uh, it's very disappointing. And, and again, I, I think it was, I was very lucky to discover those things, but uh, my goal in life is to bring that to more people. Beautiful, man. So to, to bring it to someone who's potentially listening, who has never really questioned or stepped outside of the, the framework they were given, how would you recommend they, they approach that and, and set up their own parameter of seeing the world if they've never attempted it? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it's a nuanced thing, right? I don't think it's the same way for everyone and it goes the same way for everyone. And we all have to discovered in our own way. But the methods that worked for me, I was very lucky to discover uh, the, the philosopher that influenced me the most. You know, he's a scientist, Carl Sagan. And reading the book, Demon Haunted World, I think that book, Demon Haunted World, it, it helps you get the toolkit you need to question and interrogate the world around you, whether it's your own thoughts or the thoughts of others. But at the same time, you know, another thing that's worked for me and a lot of people I've talked to is, is first principle thinking. You know, starting from a place like, okay, I think the world is unfair, right? So I think the world is unfair. Why do I think it's unfair? Because of X, Y, and Z reason. How do I know X reason is true? Because of, you know, A, B, C. And just going down that path and really, again, questioning yourself and that Socratic method. I think our uh, our culture, you know, some, some parts of our culture in the U.S. really loves the idea of, okay, we're going to, you know, everyone's entitled to their own belief and everyone, you know, has reasons for the, for the things they believe. But what I found is that if you're a smart person, if you're a thoughtful person, you can come up with a lot of really good reasons to believe really stupid things, right? I've done it. I've believed the dumbest conspiracy. I used to be like a huge conspiracy theorist. I've seen it. But if you go with the mindset of like, oh, you need evidence and you need reasons, then you start 
uh, finding all this evidence. You know, selection bias is a very real thing. It's a, it's a strong thing. And you start believing these crazy things. And I think not enough of us engage in questioning of like critically questioning our thoughts and beliefs. And instead we're too on the side of, oh, let me look for reasons to justify my beliefs. Totally. Yeah, yeah. For me, I went to a, a Jesuit high school. And the Jesuits, the history, they started, interestingly, in the Counter-Reformation, they were kind of like the Calvary to try to bring Christianity back. But they've evolved and actually become some of the most liberal and free-thinking of all the Christian institutions. But yeah, they're all about questioning everything and kind of not accepting things at face value. This is a good segue into the predominant political discourse in the, in the country. And just to lay my cards on the table, essentially when I look at my life, you know, there's no way I can say every opportunity that has been afforded me is only because of my skills, accomplishments and work ethic. And, and for me, it's almost a sense of responsibility to do something about it and and use my platform to, to promote these discussions. But I am also very aware of how I can have blinders on that and how it's not a cure all just to say, you know, white people are X you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's more nuanced than that. But yeah, I guess that that's kind of where I'm coming from is like, I want to have conversations and bring it to people like myself who, who have never thought about it. But I also understand that an extremely PC environment is restrictive in, in some ways too. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, you think about me, you know, I came to this country, you know, I grew up in Iran and in Iran, there's very strong religious education, right? With, with a strong bias towards, really hateful rhetoric towards the West, uh, the, the U.S. And, and Israel in particular. Um, you know, I was very privileged and lucky that I had family in the U.S. And I knew, you know, back then, like, hey, America isn't all evil. It's not like the worst place in the world. There's a lot of good things to, to see. But at the same time, that, that education and that, that strong rhetoric affected me to the point that I was scared to come to the U.S., right? And, and I was, I thought of, a lot of Americans as these like evil people. But that's the danger of living in a world where we constantly are trying to provide a safe space for people, right? Because I, you know, in 2001, we didn't really have that. So I was able to beat that mindset pretty quickly, whether, you know, I was pretty young, but, you know, whether it was the internet, it was my peers or whatever it was, I was able to quickly learn like, oh, actually like the, everyone around me is another human just like me and they want to love and they want to be loved and they have families. They're not these evil cartoon characters that were painted to me. But what I fear is that, you know, others my age who are coming to the U.S., who are immigrating to England, to Germany, where I have family, we're all noticing the same thing, which is like a lot of these kids are very alienated from the community. They don't feel they don't feel German. They don't feel English. They don't feel American. And that to me is, is a huge shame because I'm on the other side of that. And I mm-hmm. and I see the happiness and the beauty that comes from that, that forming bonds with people all around the world, no matter what their culture is, rather than holding on to that, you know, Islamic ideology I had where I was very hateful towards a lot of things. Absolutely. I mean, especially in, in the EU, I mean, 2015 mass migration and there was so much pushback, right. And, and I mean, Merkel's decision to, to allow that mass migration is complicated, right. I mean, I feel like the prevailing read on it then was that it was almost a 
obligation she or, or the German nation felt for what happened in, in with the National Socialists, and, and they felt like it was the right thing to do. But yeah, I mean, what do, what do you think about that, man? You probably have a very interesting perspective on that that big year in 2015. Yeah, I mean, I think we in the West have a duty um, to bring the same type of opportunities and same type of safety to as many people as possible, right? I, I, that's my goal in life, definitely. But at the same time, uh, you know, I had family in Germany who said, hey, you know, Farza, these people who are coming over, um, they don't really want to be German, right? They, they, they want to get away from the pain and suffering that they're experiencing. And it makes me question, you know, I, I used to, I remember when the Iraq war happened and I was hugely against it, even though I was 14 or, or 12 or so, I was still very politically active and I, I hated the neoconservatives. But as I've gotten older, I, I've realized I, I feel the sense of duty to the rest of the world that I was so lucky to be brought to the US and to have the life that I have. And I see so many of uh, suffering around the world. And is the answer what the neocons did? Definitely not, right? It hasn't worked out. Look at the failure of Afghanistan and, and Iraq. But is the answer to just take our eyes off the rest of the world and be happy in, in our excess and our hedonistic ways of life? I don't think so either. Like, I think we have to find effective ways of helping people. And, and one of the best movements I've found is the effective altruist movements, you know, where they're where it's a philosophy of what is the most good I can do with each dollar that I spent. And generally the, that philosophy is siding on, on the air of, or airing on the side of, Hey, let's spend our money to prevent deaths, whether it's from malaria, gonorrhea, or whatever it may be. Let's ensure that kids can live to be healthy adults so that maybe these healthy adults can, can make a difference in their communities. I think we need to do more of those things. And I think we need to bring more of that to the rest of the world rather than uh, exporting our a lot of hedonism. Go buy a Lamborghini, go buy a $10 million house. Um, those are those are very <laughs> temporary ways of gaining happiness. I don't think yeah, anyone yeah. wants that on their tombstone. For sure, man. I mean, you can't take it with you. And I guess the counter argument is you can't give it to your kids, but it's a, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, effective altruism is really interesting, right? It's in this kind of like outcropping of the new era of social sciences and behavioral economics. And I heard you talk a little bit about heuristics and, and shortcuts that are fallacies. For for the folks out there who have never familiarized themselves with the likes of Kahneman and Dan Ariely, you know, could, could you give us a little rundown on what that is? Yeah, yeah. It basically comes down to the fact that we're all monkeys, right? We're an evolutionary machine with these genes whose only goals was to make sure that they live on and pass on to the next generation. Nothing in our DNA, nothing in our nature uh, was made to make us feel good or be smart. All of that came as a, a side effect of our genes being able to pass. And as a result of that, we have a lot of evolutionary baggage. And that evolutionary baggage you see every single day, whether it's when you're in your car and you're driving and someone cuts you off and you honk at them and you get really angry, but then 10 minutes later you do that to someone else, but you excuse it and you're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really late. It's okay that I did that, right? That's that's a classic uh, biased uh, behavior there. Or when it's, you know, how I was back, you know, 15 years ago where I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm part, of the, part of this tribe. 
which is like, I'm a Middle Easterner and I'm a Muslim and everyone outside that tribe is the enemy and they're bad and everything they do is, is wrong. That's the evolutionary baggage we have. And the whole goal of the rationality movement and what wonderful people like Kahneman and Ariely are doing is to help us recognize these faults in ourselves. And as we recognize them, the research shows we become more inoculated towards these mental parasites that get in the way of our thinking. For sure. Yeah. I, so I studied organizational sciences was my nice. degree, which is yeah, really cool, man. Totally exposing yes. these ideas. And it's, I want to have um, one of my professors on, he, he's, he's studied with Ariely and he's, he's a really cool guy. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah organizational was, sciences and organizational psychology is definitely one of my favorite fields. I mean, Adam Grant and the work he's doing and many others. Incredible. I mean, once once we release Cicero, I think most of the work I'm going to feature is going to be around organizational psychology. Awesome, man. So yeah, that's that's a great transition. Tell us a little bit about about Cicero. I, I was getting pretty stoked reading about it. Yeah, yeah. So it came from uh, you know the past year and more so the past four years. You've seen, I mean, we've seen this for a long time: the polarization of America. Uh, you know, I've studied political science. We saw the research, I looked at the research, I did the research of how more and more Americans are marrying fewer people of different religions, fewer people on different um, political uh, sides of themselves. Though, you know, racially, things are still looking good and going up. When it comes to politics, people are getting more and more divided. You ask people, hey, do you have friends that are liberal and they're conservative? And they're like, no. More people say that than ever before. And the consequences of that we see happen in the past four years and definitely last year where uh, the Trump presidency and both sides of the aisle becoming much more violent and antagonistic towards each other. But growing up in Kentucky, uh, obviously, I had a lot of friends who are, who are conservatives and my family, believe it or not, even though they're all immigrants, uh, they all were Trump voters, which is really funny if you think about it but at the same time i myself I'm, I'm very classically liberal and all these people in my life whether it was the liberal ones or conservatives they all have generally i shouldn't say all of them but most humans have good ideas right they, they they their ideas are hey i want to live in a better community i want to live in a better world i want a better country for my children i don't think most people are evil and psychopaths and they're like oh i i hate you know i want to cause pain and suffering obviously those exist but even the rally that we saw in Charlotte, what was that? 600 people, right? Out of a country of 350 million human beings, you get 600 people. Maybe it was a little bit more, even if it was a thousand, whatever, out of 350 million. I think most people have their hearts in the right place. But the issue is that the incentive structures we have around media and social media, I think pigeonhole us towards certain ideologies, it's, it's not that by human nature. I don't think Einstein came out and said, oh, there's a law of nature and here's this equation that everyone is a tribalistic and everyone's this like monkey who's, you know, can't think or can't be thoughtful about the way they interact with others. I don't think that's law of nature. And I think that's a very cynical view of humans. And I think the right view of humans is that most of us are malleable. Most of us care. Most of us want to be different. So our current structures don't let that. Fox News, CNN, whatever you think about, or Twitter or, or Facebook, all put us into bubbles. But at the same time, I think most people don't really want that. They're just forced into that by the incentive structures around them. So the whole point of Cicero, uh, which I'm working on, is that there's all these people doing amazing research and amazing work on various topics. And let's say just last year about race, you know, you have 
incredible people like Cornell West and John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry, who've been talking about race, writing about race for decades, right? These are people in their 60s and 70s. Yet the, the media chose to focus on these books and thinkers that are not nuanced, that paint a black and white uh, version of the world, like, you know, white fragility. And seeing that bothered me a lot because I was surrounded by people who really care about race, like I do. But the way they were handling wasn't to go to, hey, who are the, the most thoughtful black intellectuals writing about this in nuanced ways? It was, oh, let me go to this like white woman who's a uh, consultant who gives a very unnuanced perspective of the world that most black intellectuals disagree with. And that's the world I'm trying to prevent with Cicero. So that when people want to know, hey, what is... What are, what are academics thinking about this? What are the scientists saying about this? They can go to Cicero and find out, and they'll get you know Cornell less rather than uh, whoever the author of White Fragility was. Robin D'Angelo. Yeah, Robin. Yeah, D'Angelo. it's hilarious that um, you use that example because my my first guest recommended that book, and I, I am reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting, man. I almost I almost imagine that like the audience for White Fragility is one white people, right? And Two white people who've never engaged with that kind of content and stepped outside of their own perspective. So, like, she has been in this space for a long time. And a lot of her examples, I would imagine, are personal experiences, right? Things she's witnessed with her own eyes and heard with her own ears. So, although it is kind of dramatic, I think the problems that ensue when it's not discussed are also dramatic, right? So maybe it's a an example of a drastic pendulum swing to counteract essentially undiscussed systemic systemic prejudice, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think most issues are very nuanced, right? And and that's the thing that, that bothers me is that what she writes in that book, there's a lot of good in there, right? But at the same time, there are other ways of looking at this problem, right? Like if you go to the exact opposite side, you have, you know, the the black economist Thomas Sowell and his book, Discrimination and Disparities. Again, that's a book that I, I think in a lot of ways lacks nuance like fight, white fragility does. But but at the same time, I think we would live in a much better world and we could come to a much better conclusion if we do get all sides of a perspective rather than this black and white, unnuanced way of looking at the world. Um, which I think leads to a lot of the issues that we see today. Just people don't question the fact that things are complicated and there's not easy answers, but there's different perspectives. For sure. And no matter what I do or say, it's not up to me to change somebody else's opinion, right? It's more about presenting a perspective and having the conversation and kind of building that muscle of, of having difficult conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And difficult conversations is something that, you know, a, a subsect of our, of our culture, I think is going, is, is promoting, but at the same time, it seems to be more and more antagonistic, which, which I hope it, it, it's not that way. And I hope it doesn't continue that way. Yeah. Yeah. So with the Cicero concept, what is it the name Cicero? What, where's the etymology of that name? Yeah, yeah. So Cicero was a statesman, philosopher, and an orator uh, back in the late Roman Republic uh, times, you know, in the times of Caesar. Literally, he led a strong movement against tyranny in the Republic as it was transitioning from a Republic to an empire with one uh, leader at the top. And he was on the side of, hey, let's let's stop this madness. Let's stop this infighting. There was a time of great turmoil and infighting uh, in that time. And Cicero was one of the few voices of reason. And for that, he got murdered very brutally by, uh, I think it was 
Mark Anthony and his his people. But there was that side of Cicero, right, of fighting against tyranny, of speaking out loud in, in the agora in front of hundreds of people in, in, in the Senate or in front of the just the citizenry of, of Rome. But then there was the other aspect of Cicero where uh, in the early phases of the Enlightenment, in the late Renaissance era, people were discovering Cicero's writing again and it influenced more than, you know, some, some historians of my understanding argue that more than most writers, it influenced the Enlightenment and the beginning of, of that era was Cicero's writing. So there's two sides to Cicero that I love. The side of being the public orator against tyranny, against infighting, against civil war, and then being the, the bringer of light and, and enlightenment into the world after a dark era of, of, uh, of not having that. That's brilliant, man. I love yeah. that. The, the parallels to our time. I really like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it feels very similar today. Yeah, and and I felt like you know there's there's a person Christopher Hitchens that to me was one of the greatest orators, and he died many years ago. But but I feel like we need more people like that who who get on the public uh, the the podium and get voices out there and and have reasonable conversations and debates. Yeah, I mean, on along that line, I was just listening to an old conversation with. Sam Harris on a podcast. And I mean, he, he had a very public conversation about Islam, right? Yes. And, and, and he was essentially trying to make this distinction between the concept and the teachings and the people. And he got a ton of pushback for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very unfortunate, especially, you know, it's funny. I told you how, when I went to school in upstate New York, it was a very different culture and it was a different culture because again, a lot of these kids went to prep schools. They had really wealthy families and it seemed to me, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed to me most of them didn't have much interaction with poor working class people of other races or their own race. And when I went there and, and you know, I, I kind of say the similar things that I'm seeing, saying today, it, the, the hatred I, I experienced, the, the pushback I experienced, it was unlike anything else I've had in my life. And it was a culture shock to me. Because I was like, huh, what kind of world are these people growing up in where the things I'm saying are so, so anger inducing for them? And it was a wake up moment for me, too, where I'm like, oh, I need to change the way I talk and let's change, I, change the way I interact with the world. But it, it was just really fascinating to me of how, you know, you, you like to think, again, I grew up wanting to be a scientist. You like to think there's an objective way of interrogating the universe and you know generally there's there's an objective truth we might disagree on some things of it but i had built a culture around me in kentucky where that kind of felt true and then i go to a whole different world in the northeast where that was just completely shook at its foundations where i'm like oh oh, there is a whole different way of looking at the world that's different than and i thought i had a different way where because i'm coming from the middle east and i'm like oh america is very different and the middle east is different but i realized well there's very different americas for very different people absolutely one of the earlier podcasts is with my buddy tom and i Mm -hmm. we both grew up in that essentially prep school environment right yeah and had to kind of educate ourselves in adulthood about different walks of life because our immediate circles when we were ages you know zero to 12 13 or whatever all looked the same right and it was all catholic school and you know you're gonna go to college son as opposed to like let's figure out how to get you through high school without getting arrested or having (laughs) you know having bad influences or running with the wrong crowd or you know yeah man and and that's i can only imagine dude that experience because the thing about 
those really privileged white upper class environments, dude, like nobody has it. Well, all right. Things are changing probably, but no one questions it. It's just like, this is really nice. We all have beautiful houses. Everyone is nice. And on the surface, everyone just competes for who has the nicest car, what, what schools their kids go to and all that, you know, it's total BS, you know, but, but then like, I don't know. So my family left, um, we were in like a nice South Jersey town. We moved to Philadelphia in eighth grade and it was still a very nice, relatively safe area in Philly. But my parents left that intentionally because they were like, this is not the real world. (laughs) And it's not a, it's not a judgment on anyone who wants to live in a nice place who wouldn't want to live in a nice place, but they decided, you know what, we'd rather go kind of be in a space that's a little more representative of, of more people and and opinions. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, this is reminding me of how much I hate suburbs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. In theory, they they seem like a good idea, but the more, you know, I I think the, the city planners of the fifties and sixties, they had, they had, the best of intentions at heart when they were like creating these suburbs. But we just see the consequences of it today, which is not only like racial discrimination, but socioeconomic discrimination based on where you live and your geography and, and not having the, the money for good schools. And, and then at the same time, now you have wealthy families who can afford nannies and, and for their kids to be driven around while, you know, Poorer kids, you know, the kids always have to stay at home and they don't have anywhere to walk to or public transportation to get out of the house. And yeah, it's it's a whole debacle. Um, yeah, that's another passion of my city planning. The but it's a nice. it's such a complicated topic. I mean, as, as with everything, it's always very nuanced. Yeah, man. I mean, we we could have a whole another podcast about that. To be, we have about fifteen minutes left, so two more main sections. I would love to to get at the end. I have a, a game we can play. It's a it's like a knowledge sharing, wisdom trading game. That's really fun. Uh, before we get to that, so you're, you know, you're on the Bro Nouveau podcast, right? We're modeling healthy communication for men at this point in your life. So when you think about these concepts of emotional vulnerability, asking for help, talking about things that you may need help with coming from a very, um, religiously conservative upbringing and then kind of forging your own path in, in the U S I guess, where are you along that path? If you were feeling upset about something, are you at the point where you can go to a friend and say, hey man, this is on my mind. Can you help me with this? Or, or are you still kind of on that evolution personally? No, I'm, I'm definitely on the former. I, I think you know a lot of people like to paint their success and, and the good things they've done in life as hard work from them. But when you look at the, the science, you know, one of my favorite geneticists is Robert Pullman and his argument, and I think most, most geneticists argument that argue that, you know, it's 50, 50, 50% is your nature, 50% is your DNA. And I think I, I, I bring that up because I think naturally I was always very inclined to be very emotional and very emotionally available, which is what makes me so good at the career that I have. Um, and as a result, I always had like very emotionally fueled conversations with my friends. You know, I always like before I broke up with anyone, before I left a job, if I'm feeling depressed, I always talk to my friends about them, whether, whether my, it's my female friends or, or male friends, um, those conversations were had. And, you know, I've seen my brother, he, he wasn't there and, you know, he's older than me and we've had a lot of these conversations, but he always, wonder is like, hey, how were you able to build some of the strong bonds you've been able to build with friends you've had for 15, 12 years, which apparently is like rare. I didn't know how rare it is to have friends from middle school and elementary mm-hmm. school. Uh, and, and I do think it comes from my natural inclination to want to like be very exposed to people. 
which makes them want to expose themselves to me, which means that, again, together we're doing that error correcting again, right? We're trying to figure out, hey, where are the flaws in the way you're interacting, helping each other get better? Amen, man. Yeah, we're on the same wavelength there. And I'm to the point where I like overshare when I'm same. in crisis, right? <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> but it, I don't know. For me, it's like I am very intentional about who's in my circle. And for that reason, I feel enabled to really lean on them when I need need help. Yeah. I think so many of us, it's so sad. I mean, I see this all the time where I'm talking to founders or executives or my own friends where so many of us live our lives feeling like we can never be understood. Like no one hears us. Like no one asks us anything. Like the other day, you know, my parents are divorced and I was asking my dad, I was like, dad, you know, you always ask me why things went wrong. How many times did you just sit down with mom and be like, Hey, I've noticed you, you, you're doing X and Y. What caused that? What am I doing as, as the man of the house, as your husband to force you to, to act in these ways? And he never had those conversations in the 17 years they were married. And I think a lot of us don't, right? Where we, where we don't have these conversations with our friends, with our kids, with our families. Instead, we like to go for the unnuanced and simple answer, which is the theme of what I always talk about, which is lack of nuance. We're like, Oh, this, you know, Oh, my, my wife is just being mean for no reason. My husband's an asshole. My kids are just bad behavior. We need to fix their behavior rather than figuring out what, what is happening in their environment. What am I doing to bring this out of them? And how can I address that? And I just wish more people, I think if more people were understood and felt like they're heard, we'd live in a much better world. Amen, brother. Well, you're getting the message out. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Yeah, thank Last you. section here. Three things game. What month is your birthday in? Uh, November. November. Okay. So I'm up first because my birthday is closer. This game, three things. It'll be linked in the um, the show notes. It's a prompt. It would say, what are three things you have learned from X, Y, or Z? Mm-hmm. And then we give one, two, three as a structured answer. So my question, what are three things you have learned about gratitude? Mm. I think without gratitude, one, without gratitude, someone's not going to go very far without gratitude. Even if it's just lip service and just saying thank you and not even meaning it. Socially, there are certain calls and recalls that have to happen for a conversation to go well and gratitude has to be part of it too. So authentic gratitude then is so powerful. And actually, you know, we talk about sitting with bad feelings, but actually, you know, when I have a moment where I am feeling extremely grateful and I sit in it and almost like soak in it like a hot tub, it's amazing, right? Because it yeah. it can it can course correct, as you were saying, and, and kind of make the inconveniences and tragedies more bearable by reminding myself of how grateful and lucky I am. Thirdly, gratitude, I think it, it ties in with in a professional sensing sense networking, but in, you know, a more holistic sense, just like having a rich and fulfilled life. Being grateful, being genuinely grateful opens up more doors. And if someone shares with me and I am genuinely grateful and they can feel that, things click. You know, more doors are opened and more more opportunities come knocking. So it's a good it's a good thing to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with you. Hell yeah, man. Okay. And here's your question. From making, so what are the things you've learned from making mistakes? Great. I think the first thing I've learned is that mistakes, though you try, should try to minimize them. They are a opportunity for growth. Like this is the most generic thing any startup founder will ever t- tell you, but mistakes and failure are always an opportunity for growth. And People say this, but sometimes they mean it, sometimes they don't, because it is the right thing to say, and it's it's a nice thing to say that, that makes you look smart and thoughtful. But a lot of times, again, people fall into those heuristics and cognitive biases where they start blaming everything else but themselves, which goes into my second thing, which is I think 
the philosophy that was ingrained into me a couple of years ago by Jocko Willenick and extreme ownership. You know, it seems like there's some good good research around it. Right? Maybe maybe the, the science will come out on the other end, but at least as a philosophy, the idea that whenever you make mistakes, always look for how you as a leader could have somehow prevented this. Blame yourself in a simple way, the nuanced way, so you blame yourself for everything so that you can start thinking about, hey, how could I have prevented this? And it really hit me when I was reading that book. Uh, I was supposed to go to a show with one of my best friends, and he was late to to go with us, and I was supposed to drive us, and I got really pissed off at him. I was like, why are you late? You, you know, I got really angry. And then I realized, like, wait a second, like, what if it's not his fault? Because I never sent him a message. I never reminded him. He was just my roommate, and I told him once. And at the end of the day, it was actually my fault, right? So this mistake became an opportunity to learn, like I said in the first part, but only if you're willing to take ownership of it. Uh, and then the third part of a mistake is that oversharing can be a problem, right? I used to, I, I came from a pedigree of, hey, let me like, let me always be honest. Honesty is key. You know, I had read this book, Lying by Sam Harris, and I said, I never want to lie. And it's this horrible thing. But I found that you can't control how people interpret it the things you say, you can try to phrase things in a way where they'll interpret it the way you want. But oversharing can really, truly be a real thing. And when you're talking about your mistakes, it's great to talk about them. You should talk about them, but you should be careful with who you talk about and how you phrase it, because the way you phrase it can make it come very differently. 100%. I totally agreed, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially the oversharing. I think we have a lot of parallels, but that's one that I've had to learn. <laughs> I'm st- I still do it, dude. I still do it. I can't stop doing it. It's like a disease. <laughs> I love it. I love sharing. <laughs> Literally, that's like how my monkey, talk about the monkey brain. That's how I feel with that one. Dude, awesome. Farzad, thank you so much, man. Thanks for hopping on the show. And uh, how can anybody out there who's interested in your content, your consultancy, where, where can they find you? Yeah, thanks, Thomas. So if you're a lifelong learner and you're curious and you want to get podcasts, lectures, videos, essays, blogs from the world's top thinkers in any field, then you want to go to cicero.ly. So that's C-I-C-E-R-O dot L-Y. Sign up. We're going to come up with that uh, very soon. It's first going to be a newsletter. I'll send you just incredible thinkers with the best ideas world-leading scientist. And then uh, if you're a startup founder or you work in the world of customer experience, whether as a product leader or customer success or customer support leader, farzadkosravi.com is my website and I do consulting and, and mentorship uh, through that as well. Awesome, man. I'll link to both of those so the, yeah. the good people can check it out. Awesome. Thank you, Thomas. It's been a pleasure talking to you, man. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks for thanks for the time and I look forward. Yeah. I'll let you know if I'm uh, up in Denver in this summer. Yes, please do. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome to hang out. Absolutely, man. It'll be fun. Okay, thanks, man. Thanks for being right, on the show. You. Well, there you go, folks. Big thank you to Farzad for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Check the show notes for all of his content as well as most of the ideas and thinkers that we talked about. There's a lot of interesting stuff to read on. And I hope this sparks some imagination in all of you to continue your lifelong learning. It certainly did in me. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau podcast. Bro Nouveau.